7.33. Moving now on to this question of pro-democracy protests continuing in Hong Kong for a fifth consecutive month, but also a surge in the number of anti-government demonstrations across the world. Let's first catch up with Dr. Julie Norman, teaching fellow in politics and international relations at uh, University College London. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. And we we're going to ask you specifically about issues ranging from Lebanon to Iraq. But generally speaking, do you draw a link with other global movements or, or, or would you fall in the camp that it's kind of coincidental that so many protests are happening at the same time? Well, for sure, the protests that we're seeing around the world uh, all differ by context, and there's a lot of differentiation, but this is a real exciting moment in that a lot of movements in different places are looking to each other, are being inspired by the mobilization they're seeing in other countries, and that's inspiring more and more people to come out in the kinds of numbers that we've seen. What about more specifically, then, what's happening in in Lebanon and, and Iraq? Yeah, so in Lebanon and Iraq, um, two, again, very different political contexts. But we do see people coming out, um, first, against corruption within the respective states, um, second, against high unemployment and, uh, and economic issues, and especially around issues of inequality. In both of these countries, we see that um, people feel uh, left out of the benefits that they feel the elites are really just reaping and, and gaining from and are really just coming out and, and protesting against that. Um, the trajectory in both places has, of course, been different. In Iraq, the state has responded to the protests similarly to they have in the past with, um, with a lot of violence against protesters, and that has um, not diminished the enthusiasm but has changed that course. Whereas in Lebanon, we've seen a more um, overall, a more peaceful response, which has uh, just changed the trajectory between the two. Does that reflect the, the brutality that Iraq has gone through for the last few years? Um, partly it does. I mean, Iraq, you know, we're, we're looking at protesters who um, young people have grown up mostly with a memory of war, you know, starting with, um, with the U.S. invasion and going through uh, ISIL and ISIS. And so this is you know, a generation that has, has grown up with that context um, and has gone through successive governments who have you know, used force in different ways or have been um, trying to govern in a time of war and conflict. In Lebanon, by contrast, of course, um, also a post-Civil War context, but a civil war that ended much further back and a country that's been relatively stable um, in terms of violence for a while, but is... Um, struggling in terms of corruption, in terms of debt, and in terms of inequality between the upper class and the people. Yeah, when we talk about a WhatsApp tax, it, it sounds like a first world problem. Can you clarify for us what that is? It certainly does. So um, Lebanon, uh, the some people say what tipped off the protests was a measure to increase taxes on, on a couple of things, tobacco and a few other things but mainly on WhatsApp calls, which most people use as their main source of communication. Um, and that, that did spark some protests on the day that was announced, and that tax was, um, was, was pulled back pretty quickly. But I think it's a misnomer to call this a WhatsApp uh, you know, revolution or to suggest that, that that's really what this protest was about. Sure, that got people out in the streets um, to start with, but that just became a, a, a channel 
to funnel so many of the frustrations that Lebanese have felt that relate more to day-to-day life, the fact that there isn't uh, safe drinking water in the country, the fact that there isn't reliable electricity, there isn't waste removal, um, and that people are struggling just to get these social services, while, again, they see um, the elites uh, just living an extremely lavish lifestyle. So inequality... Uh, lack of freedom. The, these are themes that run through many of the, the protest movements around the world. Just staying with the Lebanon situation for a moment, though, do you, do you suspect that another source of comparison that's driving protests, for example, on the WhatsApp front, is knowing that other countries have free access to internet and free access to calls. In other words, when when WhatsApp calls first came around or the equivalent before even WhatsApp, you would maybe have had a scenario where people were wondering if this was too good to be true. Uh, the idea of suddenly making free calls, uh, phone bills having been a burden on families for, for decades. Um, but, but knowing that the rest of the world or much of the rest of the world gets to enjoy those services for free, that, that, that would inform those people, wouldn't it? It certainly does, and this is often when we see mobilization and protests um, come out. It's not so much necessarily when um, people are, are the most deprived and the most suffering, but more when it's a sense of relative deprivation, when you see that others have access to something that you are being denied or that you don't have, and that's often when we see the mobilization. Um, and again, for Lebanon, you know, the WhatsApp uh, thing, I mean, people obviously have access to, to Internet and whatnot there, but partly because electricity and reliable, you know, services in that way are limited, then people do rely on and the, the freeware that you can get through, um, through online uh, services and whatnot. Just finally, on both of these countries and, and even more broadly, we saw mixed results from the Arab Spring years ago. Do, do you see anything about the current protest that's, that, that looks like they're going to make a real difference or change? Well, sure, there certainly are some echoes to Arab Spring, and I think that's one reason why a lot of people are perhaps just at best cautiously optimistic, because we saw such incredible mobilization in 2011, um, especially in Egypt, but elsewhere also. And then the change that so many hoped for and believed would come did not. And states like Egypt are arguably worse than they were before that that revolution. So I think there's some caution in that. Um, And I think the other thing that's important to point out is those grievances that drove the Arab Spring in 2011. Most of those are still there, if not even deeper. So it's... um, it's not, uh, it's not a stretch to say that these protests are an echo of that. The question, of course, now is what's going to happen from this point. Um, in Lebanon, you know, we saw the resignation of the prime minister, um, and you still protesters calling for an actual change in the actual system of government. So to see if they're able to bring that through and the big question of what that would look like um, is where people will start focusing now. Dr. Norman at UCL in London, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Let's uh, also catch up with Joshua Keating, staff writer and editor at Slate, uh, focusing on international affairs, the author of Invisible Countries, Journeys to the Edge of Nationhood, which sounds like a great title, by the way. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the plug. Um, Yeah, well, I'd like to start by just asking your thoughts on what makes protests successful. It's something that I've reflected on here because when I first came to Korea, I'd see these constant demonstrations that didn't seem to take us anywhere, but they just seemed to disrupt things. 
But then suddenly, um, from late 2016 into 2017, I saw before my eyes a protest movement that didn't just fade away, but actually ended up forcing an early presidential change and no doubt influenced the court's harsh sentencing of Park and Hay, who's still in prison and is set to be for decades. Uh, in other words, what's the difference between that kind of movement? Is it just pure numbers and sustained protests or, or do you notice other factors? Yeah, I think the numbers are a key factor. I think that um, whether they can sort of garner the sympathy of multiple sectors of society, so it's not just one uh, group protesting, there has to be uh, kind of widespread support um, you know, both across the political spectrum or different ethnic groups, depending on what kind of, uh, you know, political setting you're talking about. In the context of authoritarian countries, I'd say that, you know, a key factor is how the security services and the regime itself responds. I mean, if, you know, the, uh, some governments will always just sort of put protests down with force, but it's when, you know, they're worried about their own legitimacy, about when leaders' inner circles start turning on them or when security services refuse to fire on protesters or move in to put them down, then uh, that's when I think you see uh, governments start to um, waver a little bit. To what extent do you think social media is driving protesters on? Yeah, I think it's big. I mean, the a lot of these protests we're seeing around the world, whether you know, you're talking about Hong Kong or the uh, separatist protests in Catalonia or, or even these protests we're seeing in Chile now against austerity measures. And I think that all of, none of them really have a sort of central leadership. There's not a sort of single figure associated with them. And so social media, I think, is playing a role in uh, allowing these groups to, to organize themselves. Yeah. Well, austerity measures is an interesting question because, again, there have been countries in the past that have successfully imposed austerity measures. In fact, South Korea is one of them after the IMF crisis uh, and, and a country with a sense of nationalism. Maybe not everyone happy about it, but bands together and, and recovers. Sometimes groups of people refuse. They don't they don't want to accept what's being imposed on them. Perhaps social media drives part of that, but um, do, do you think there is this comparative sense, like, well, you know, if this country is not putting up for it, we don't want to put up with it either? I think that uh, austerity measures can be a kind of spark. I mean, I, if you look at Chile, the uh, you know the protests began over a subway fare hike of thirty pesos, which is about four U.S. So I'm not sure what the Korean equivalent is, but um, that. Uh, you know, clearly that alone was not what got people out on the street. It was a larger sense of, of economic malaise, of inequality, of frustration with perceived corruption of the political class. So I think that uh, austerity measures, when the government, when, you know, either ruling elites or the government doesn't have credibility, those can be the kind of spark that set off these movements. Um, and I think that, you know, when uh, governments don't have credibility in the eyes of voters, it kind of limited, you know, it, it limits their ability to impose these kind of measures. People don't want to accept price rises or tax increases or cuts to social services um, if, you know, they see or if they perceive that uh, leaders are just enriching themselves. 
By the way, 30 pesos in Korean won is about 47 won based on my quick search of the exchange rate. So, yeah, (laughs) that wouldn't. uh, Is that about four cents roughly in the US? Four US cents. Yeah. Okay, so that puts that in perspective. But but staying with Chile for a moment, um, Mm -hmm. 30 years, but then reaching this point now, and it's suddenly drawing even more attention among all the protests that are going on because Chile has just announced that they'll not be hosting next month's summit of leaders from APEC countries, which which had been planned. And actually, we're going to see the environmental campaign leader, Greta Thunberg, also. She was on this journey through North America that was going to finish in South America in Chile. And she's had to announce on social media that she's waiting to see what's going to happen. So this is actually a situation for Chile where they're getting far more attention than they might even ordinarily have. Where do you see it ending up? Yeah, sure. Two major conferences, APEC and also uh, the the COP25, the big UN climate conference, which is what uh, Greta Thunberg was traveling to. Um, you know, I, th- I think that Chile has been a kind of, uh, one, it's been one of the most prosperous countries in Latin America over the past 30 years, one of the most politically stable. I think its transition to democracy after the Pinochet era has been kind of held up as a model for a lot of people. So surprising to say the least, to see um, this kind of up there. I mean, that there's this, you know, you kind of get the sense that if it can happen in Chile, it could happen almost anywhere. Exactly. Um, you know, I, I think that really, I mean, there's there were, were sort of ending, or like several years ago, Latin America ended a period of really robust economic growth driven, you know, largely by a boom in commodities that um, a lot, pulled a lot of people out of poverty into the middle class, uh, governments got to ramp up their social spending, uh, build generous welfare states. And about four or five years ago, you know, commodity prices and, um, you know, sort of slowdown in, uh, in industrialization in China kind of drove a slump in the commodities market. And that's had an effect all over the region. And I think it's put a lot of these societies on edge. And you have people who kind of have higher expectations now for, um, you know, the kind of lives they expect, and they're feeling precarious about um, their status. And also now it's a much more educated population, a population with a few more resources, and therefore is sort of better able to mobilize. So it's it's almost, you know, I think we have this idea that economic protests are born out of absolute degradation, but it's, it's almost sometimes when people... Um, when there is some economic progress and people they enter the middle class and then feel especially vulnerable, um, that that's when a lot of times we can see uh, protests like this erupt. Yeah, well, really interesting to reflect further on this with you. And, and thank you very much for taking the time. Joshua Keating. Thank you so much. Joshua Keating, International Affairs staff writer and editor at Slate.